Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Timothy Lombardo, author of Blue Collar Conservatism. Timothy Lombardo, author of Blue Collar Conservatism, Frank Rizzo's Philadelphia, and Populist Politics. Why a book about Frank Rizzo now? Well, truth be told, uh, it, it, this isn't a now book. This is a book I've been working on for close to a decade. Um, this, this, this book uh, started out as my dissertation, which I defended. I, I finished in, in 2013, and I've been spending some bit of time on it uh, and all that. Um, it turned out to be really interesting timing, um, uh, not only with certain things that are happening within the city, within you know, discussions of whether or not to keep the, the statue of Rizzo that's across the street from City Hall, uh, with... Uh, well, with the election of Donald Trump uh, tr uh, during the 2016 campaign, uh, several people uh, began making the comparison between them. Uh, and so there's, there's been, I think, <laughs> more interest than I expected there to be when I, when I uh, began the book, uh, you know, not eight or nine years ago, or began researching it eight or nine years ago. Uh, the timing has been, um, it, it's been good for, for getting people to think about him getting people to think about the, the type of people who voted for him. Now, you said before we started that you grew up in Philadelphia. I did. I did. Uh, what, what were you told about? What did you know about Frank Rizzo as you were growing up? Um, you, you know, you knew he was controversial. We, we, you know, I was, I was born at the tail end of Rizzo's, uh, Rizzo's mayoralty, and so I never knew him personally. I, although I do have vague memories of him running again in like 1987 and 1991. I have those vague memories. Uh, I knew he was a controversial figure. I knew um, you, people either loved him or hated him. Um, and you grow up with, you know, you grow up with the stories of, you know, the nightstick and the cummerbund, you know, the, 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 some of the really outlandish statements he would make or, and some of the, the, the silly statements he would make. Uh, but I didn't, I mean, I knew of him before, you know, I, I obviously knew who he was and growing up I knew who he was and as I, you know, I was a history student so I learned who, who he was but I really didn't get to know, know him that well until I started getting into the book and really getting into who he was and, and why people were drawn to him. So this is your dissertation for doctorate? Yes, this was my, this was my doctoral dissertation that, that I did several years ago and then the book was a product or a revision of that. And what was the point of your dissertation I and mean, what were you aiming at? Um, oh, same thing that I aimed at in, that I aim at in the book. I, I um, so I wanted to. I was thinking about political American political history, um, and I, I was thinking about the the types of. I mean, thinking about conservatism, the rise of conservatism is is a major um, emphasis on in modern American political history. It's probably the thing that political historians have been focused on the most uh, because of. of I mean, that is the story of the, of the 20th century, is the rise and fall of liberalism, the rise of, of the Republican Party, the rise of the right. And I, you know, being a, a scholar, I, I read a lot of books that were about this. Um, 
Uh, and then, you know, you have the broad overviews that look at your Goldwaters, that look at your Reagans, you look at those figures, or you have the, the type of things that, that take a locality like I did. Uh, and they, they try to do something a little bit more in depth, and they, you know, a little bit uh, history, a little more from the bottom up and not just those central figures. Um, and there, I was reading a lot of those books, and they were excellent books, great books, but there were books on Atlanta, uh, books on uh, suburban communities in the South, suburban communities in the West, the books on those areas. And, and as I was reading these books, what I said to myself is like, something seems missing here. You know, there's something that I'm not seeing in this. And that's when I started thinking about home. I started thinking about where I came from and started to think about, uh, you know, the sort of, not the people that were in the suburbs, the people who didn't leave the city and the people who, who were there. And, and, and then, you know, I start, start thinking about a figure like Rizzo. Uh, and, and when I looked into it further, I, the, and it's one of the points I make in the book now, is that when we're looking at American political history, we're not, we shouldn't be looking for the rise of conservatism. We should be looking for the rise of conservatisms. That there's different forms of this ideology, different forms of this political movement. And what I'm arguing in this book is that what I what I'm looking at is this specifically urban, um, you know, working and middle class, lower middle class movement uh, represented in Frank Rizzo is something that's of something of its own that I call blue collar conservatism. Well, you also including your subtitle populist politics. What yes. does populist mean? So it's a, populist is such a, it's such a difficult word to define because it means so many different things in so many different contexts. Uh, my use of it is, is, uh, comes down to the way people saw Rizzo as uh, not, or, or the way his supporters saw Rizzo, because he had plenty of detractors. The way his supporters saw him as, uh, you know, a man of the people, a man like them, as they say in the book, as, uh, that he was one of us. Right, and, and, was, and that I, I come to say is, uh, in addition to everything else that sort of made up Rizzo's appeal, that, that he was, you know, he wasn't an elite. Uh, if you look at the, the people who sort of come before Rizzo in, in the mayor's office, uh, his immediate professor, uh, predecessor is uh, James H.J. Tate, who himself comes from a, uh, at least a working class uh, background, but he is a lifelong politician. Before, before that, you have Richardson Dilworth. You have uh, uh, Joseph Clark. These are, you know, these were the guys that sort of wrested the city away from a, a long, corrupt Republican machine. But these were these were blue blood, blue blooded uh, Ivy League lawyers, and and just not people from the neighborhood. Rizzo was from the neighborhood. Uh, he grew up in South Philadelphia, and they, and people saw that about him, and they and they say, you know, they they saw when he succeeded, they saw it as sort of their own success. You know, the, the, the guy who dropped out of high school, worked his way up through the, first through the police department, and then would be go, go on to become mayor. And to, for especially, you know, white ethnic, uh, working class uh, Philadelphians, or white Philadelphians, anyway, uh, saw him as, uh, as sort of a, a champion of who they were. You know, he was a guy who was who is going to stick up for them against the whims of, in, in, in their language, you know, liberal elites, and, and in their language, uh, those who try to threaten their traditions or values. What was it about Frank Rizzo? I mean, how did he emerge from being just, a, just another cop to being commissioner and then mayor? Well, I don't know if, <laughs> I don't know if it would be fair to call Rizzo, ever call Rizzo just another cop. Rizzo was, uh, from his early days in the police force, he was, he was a... Uh, he, easily a larger-than-life figure. I mean, he was, a, he was a type of person who stood out. Um, his father was a police officer. And his father 
you could argue was kind of just another cop. You know, his father never really had the ambition to go farther in the department. Um, but Rizzo used connections, he, and he was an aggressive police officer, more so than anything. And he started getting, you know, getting attention, uh, at least from within the department, oh, the mid to late 50s, like long before, uh, before he, he was uh, commissioner. A, a, just for his, his willingness to tackle any sorts of things. I guess one of the, one of the first things he gets known for in the police department is he's uh, cracking down on uh, coffee houses and, and um, illegal clubs that were hotspots for the gay community in Philadelphia in the 1950s. Uh, he builds on that and he starts working his way up and he gets transferred. He keeps getting transferred uh, to different precincts or, or not transferred, promoted, uh, but in each one people complain. He's, get, he's getting complaints but other cops love him. Uh, in 64 in 63, he's named deputy commissioner in charge of uniformed personnel because, because he is what they call a cop's cop. You know, he's the guy, he's not the, the police commissioner in the 1960s is um, Howard Leary. And, and Howard Leary is, a, is an educated man. He's, a, he's, a, he's well versed in, the, in modern law enforcement practices. The majority of the Philadelphia Police Department in the 1960s are white, blue-collar, people who come from working-class backgrounds. But policing is a job you can do with a high school education and make a fairly decent living at. And that's what they see in Rizzo. He's not the egghead at the top. Rizzo is the, uh, the, the beat cop who's looking out for the cops who are also who are doing the, the, the hard, that hard work. And so he's... He's not just a, a regular. He's 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 standing out to begin with, but he's, you know, he gets his first chance to uh, run the department on his own in '66 uh, when his predecessor, uh, after after Howard Leary left, his predecessor um, Ed Bell uh, takes ill, and he gets a chance, and he uses that chance to conduct raids on local civil rights organizations and, and things people he thinks are dangerous radicals and was he taking liberties there i mean while the while his boss was yes. sick he just said all right yes, i'm the absolutely. boss absolutely i'm uh, yeah yeah the, the the organization he targeted was the student nonviolent coordinating committee um, uh, snick was uh, they they only had a very small presence in the city uh, but they had a much larger presence nationwide and, and very famously uh, the year before stokely carmichael had started using the phrase black power and Rizzo was insistent on, uh, you know, what he said is eliminating the black power threat in the city. And, and it was growing. And so the, the city has a, a vibrant civil rights movement. Um, he accused SNCC of, planti of planning, I believe, if I want to remember, planning to uh, bomb Independence Hall. SNCC claimed that they planted explosives, that the police planted explosives. Rizzo said that wasn't true. And it's, it's almost impossible to tell who was lying and who was telling the truth there. Uh, but Rizzo was making it clear um, to a lot of people where he stood, where he stood on the issue of law and order, where he stood on the issue of civil rights and things like that. And, and a lot of what this book is, I, as I framed it, and you asked me earlier about you know, what made me look into it in the first place, there, one is that other side of conservatism. The other side, what I've always envisioned this book as, is the other side of the story of civil rights in Philadelphia. The civil rights movement, and that story has been told wonderfully by some other really great scholars. Um, this is the other side of that story. This is the, the white response to it. And the white response was to, to get behind someone like Rizzo. Is that what caused the rise of blue-collar conservatism, the reaction to the civil rights movement? Primarily. 
Primarily, yes. Um, but I also argue that, like, that while that is the catalyst, there was a lot more nuance in it than we're used to thinking, you know, this is, what it, this is the standard narrative of white working class anti-liberalism, white working class conservatism in the 60s going into the 70s is uh, that this was a, a racist backlash against the advances of the civil rights movement, against the, uh, the rise of black power and, and all of that. And that's all true. And I don't dispute any of that, but I do argue that they 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 approach it a lot more uh, with, with a lot more nuance and, and a lot more uh, in a lot of ways political savvy than than we often give credit for because they're not you know they're they're conscious of what the civil rights movement looked like in the South they're they're conscious of what it looked like when Bull Connor released the dogs in Birmingham right and they're not uh, talking about maintaining segregation. And they're very, and, that's, and a lot of the book, I think, is really about um, political language. They're, talk, they're not talking about maintaining segregation. They're talking about maintaining white ethnic traditions. They're, talking, they're not talking about uh, maintaining, you know, the, the, my, four big, my three big case studies when it comes to desegregation are, are schools, um, housing, and, and employment. The, 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 when I'm looking at blue-collar employment, it's not the, the, especially in my case, it was the, the uh, construction unions. It's not construction unions saying we need to stay all white. It's saying these are, this is about labor rights. This is about this is about work. When it's uh, when it comes to public housing, it's not because uh, or at least they're saying it's not because the uh, the potential tenants of public housing housing are African American. It's because they didn't work hard to get there. In this, in this school, it's not about uh, want, wanting to maintain all white schools. It's about maintaining uh, the tradition of neighborhood schools. In all of these cases, what my point is that language matters. That you know that that the adoption of the that phrasing matters because uh, it's it, it gets internalized and and it's it's instead of talking about race, they talk about class. They talk about their blue collar identities. That's hence the name blue collar conservatism. At the same time, each one of those things still reinforces the same segregation that was there in the first place, right? It, but that but the and it's even though it's the same. At the same end, the the shift in that political language is sort of key to understand and to to understanding how class and class identity, especially, uh, plays a major role in the rise of, of of what I call blue collar conservatism. When you talk about the white working class, who are you talking about? I mean, how how big a group was it? What were the ethnicities? What work did they do? So, so I, I prefer to use the term blue collar to white working class. I, I sometimes use them interchangeably um, because I, I talk about blue collar identity, uh, white blue collar identity, excuse me, um, as something a little bit more fluid, uh, something a little bit more all-encompassing. So I'm, who I'm talking about are, you know, the, those you would traditionally think of working class, you know, construction workers, um, uh, People in like, like longshoremen, uh, people in, in those kind of jobs, but I'm also kind of including uh, a lower middle class that is perhaps a little bit more upwardly mobile, probably moving past the, those old uh, union jobs and things like that, uh, but still maintaining those uh, ethnic and neighborhood values that were important in in older working class neighborhoods. So it's for me, it is, it's, some of it's about employment. And so I, I look an awful lot at unions, at, at the building and construction trade unions, which are one of the more powerful unions in the city in the 1960s. Um, but I mostly, I, I really look at neighborhoods. You know, uh, 
think, you know, I look at South Philly, South Philadelphia a lot, and I look at Northeast Philadelphia a lot, and these, these old neighborhoods that are adjusting to these new challenges, and in Northeast Philadelphia, you have new neighborhoods traversing uh, uh, this very similar challenges, but from a different perspective, but also doing so with this, you know, this sort of uh, blue-collar identity in mind. And, you know, it's the reason I, I choose to look at it, I, I mean, I look at it that way is because it's very fluid. Case, I mean, Rizzo himself provides probably the best case in point is that Rizzo, born and raised in a row home in South Philadelphia, uh, but as his career expands and he's moving up from, you know, beat cop to deputy commissioner to police commissioner to mayor, you know, it's hard to really say he's not really working class anymore, but he's still blue collar, and they still people still see him as a blue collar figure, even though. You know he's he's got a he, he a, a, a very large home in in Chestnut Hill by the time he's mayor and he's he's got all he's got a lot more trappings of of people who have a lot more money, um, but he's still culturally blue collar even if he's not uh, economically working class, and that's sort of the distinction I make there. How did the blue collar workers vote before Frank Rizzo came along? General and well, I mean even with Rizzo they 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 tended to to vote Democrat. Um, and, and one of the things I, I kind of include in this is, is, is what I call a, a selective rejection of welfare liberalism, in that they are not, they're not completely turning away. And, and one of the reasons, you know, as I said earlier, that, that we need to not look at uh, the rise of conservatism, but the rise of conservatisms, is that there's subtlety and nuance. And not everybody was a Goldwaterite. Not everybody was, uh, you know, there in 1970s. You see, there in California, there's the rise of a, of a, of a, um, uh, the tax revolt. This isn't who these people are. These are people who are still interested in in federal programs and federal money, uh, and and federal uh, grants. So they uh, didn't vote for Goldwater in '64. Uh, I'm sure some did, but gen most of them. I mean, these were these were Kennedy folks. You know, I, the people I'm looking at are, you know. Working middle, middle, lower middle class, middle class, primarily Catholics. Um, these were these were people that these were Kennedy people. These were people that supported Dilworth and and you know so so when 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 Clark and Dilworth sort of like I said earlier wrested power away from this long corrupt political machine, promising good government, promising um, city planning, uh, effective city planning, promising urban renewal. The people I'm looking at were all in. They didn't really, you know, they never fully trusted Dilworth because Dilworth, you know, wasn't like them. And, you know, Dilworth was from, like, uh, a wealthy family. So they never, it's not that they liked Dilworth, but they liked what, what he was selling. And they liked those ideas. Um, Jim Tate, uh, who who's Rizzo's predecessor, I mean, he's, you know, he's kind of gruff. He's working class. Uh, but he's, he's actively seeking out federal funding for, for urban renewal and for highway construction and, and doing like, you know, these sort of mid-century urban liberal, uh, following the, 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 the mid-century urban liberal formula. And Rizzo doesn't entirely back off from that. He talks very conservative and he, he's, and he talks very, um, you know, culturally conservative, but economically there is still a promotion of, of especially Urban funding and urban ur urban renewal, and urban uh, uh, the the plan by the science seventies is urban conservation, uh, and so he's and the, the people I'm saying are, aren't saying you know get government out of our lives. They're saying we want government to work for the people who deserve it and not the people who don't, and that, that's the distinction that they they're making. Urban renewal is great because it helps people like them, 
public housing is not because it helps people who didn't work hard for it. And it's, that's the distinction. So it's not like, it's not that liberalism or government programs, you know, that, that, that sort of the economic side of liberalism is in, inherently bad. It just wasn't working for the right people. In some cases, it worked too well for the wrong people in their mind. What, what was going on in Philadelphia? What was it like right then that caused the atmosphere that made Frank Rizzo the, the person they gathered around? Um, there, are several, there are several factors in this. Um, and the one side is all the sort of economic desegregation side. The other side is um, the rise of of crime, the, 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 there, are, there are rising rates of crime there, and um, you know there's a the 1964 in there in North Philadelphia, the the largest of the you know the the series of urban uprisings that strike American cities in the 1960s hits the hits uh, Philadelphia uh, called the, the Columbia Avenue riot. Uh, it's a th it's three days of uh, that that three days of of Disorder, um, looting, rioting, so on and so forth, that uh, began as almost every single one of these did in the 1960s, a what seemingly minor police incident, in this case a, a, a pair of police officers um, trying to arrest an intoxicated couple uh, who were arguing in the street. Uh, but rumors spread through North Philadelphia that you know that they were abusing women. I think the, the the rumor was that the police had struck a pregnant woman, and so like like the same thing we would see a month earlier in Harlem. Same thing we would see in Detroit and Watts and Newark. You know, and these and this is what happened. This is what happened in Philly, and that's a catalyst. That's a catalyst for, um, especially a catalyst for for supporting the police in the face of this. Um, and, and it's interesting, and it's something I don't quite get into as much as I probably should in the book, but police have not always been thought of positively in urban America. I mean, I mean, police professionalization by the 1960s is only about a century old. And for a very long time, it was not a, a job that most people thought well of. It was you know, a job immigrants got, and it was a job that that there is widespread distrust of police officers for, for mu much of the first half of the 20th century. That begins to shift as the main focus of a lot of urban police departments uh, becomes a focus on either urban disorder or civil rights protests, and that's what happens in Philadelphia. Um, and so there's a, what I call a, the, this, the establishment of this culture of reverence for the police, uh, especially among uh, you know, the, the people I'm talking about, white, blue-collar uh, Philadelphians. And it is it is it first comes between throwing support behind the police, the police who who you know are not only facing the, who have a hard job, and that's the way they frame it. This is about the hard work of police work. But that's a that that then deals in or, or over intersects, excuse me, with everything else I'm talking about. Like you, I, the one point I try to make is that we can't look at the what we, historians refer to as the, the politics of law and order. Something Goldwater uh, traded on a. George Wallace did, Richard Nixon. I mean, historians credit law and order be the, the single biggest factor in the election of 68 that saw Nixon win. Um, and Rizzo is arguably the um, clearest example of that moving from law enforcement to politics on a local level. Uh, but you can't, you can't remove that from school desegregation because there were disturbances in the schools and, and, and they saw this as a, a breakdown of law and order in the schools. You can't remove that from 
you know, the, the controversies over uh, equal opportunity politics and, and, and what will later be called affirmative action because uh, the, the police are, are working these protests. Um, and the same, and, and same thing with public housing and all the other things I discussed. It's all interwoven, uh, and the but but the Columbia Avenue riot uh, is the catalyst that then just gets pulled into all of these other issues. How did the police react to the Columbia Avenue riots? Interestingly, actually, um, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the the police commissioner at the time was a man named Howard Leary, and Howard Leary had a reputation as um, somebody who. You know, he wasn't a, a to, to borrow a colloquialism here, he wasn't a shoot first, ask questions guy, that kind of guy. He was, he, he thought the best thing to do was build bridges between communities and the police force. Um, the Very famously, Cecil B. Moore, who was Philadelphia, a uh, fiery leader of the Philadelphia NAACP, um, and, a, and a far more militant leader than you would find in, in any other branch of the NAACP, probably around the, anywhere else in the country. Uh, a very big critic of the police. Nevertheless, he calls Howard Leary uh, one of the finest policemen in the in the country, you know, or the most enlightened policeman in the country, I believe. And so, the specific way they dealt with it was to uh, to basically quarantine. It's, it's around Twenty uh, Second and Ridge Avenue uh, on what was in Columbia. Uh, Columbia Avenue is now uh, is now. Cecil B. Moore Avenue in this today, uh, but rather than go in there and um, you know start arresting people, they tried not to let it spread and and you know made as as few arrests as possible uh, and uh, tried to let it cool down on its own and enlisting the work of local le uh, civic leaders to kind of calm people down uh, and it and it worked compared I mean. It was still incredibly damaging. It was there's still still problems uh, throughout the community, uh, but com if you compare North Philadelphia to Watts, or you feel if you compare North Philadelphia to Harlem, this was it was far less catastrophic. And and Howard Leary gets tremendous praise from across the country for that for for attempting to deal with this uprising in a uh, a more civil manner. The problem with that is that it enraged. It specifically enraged Rizzo, uh, who was on the scene that night and was, you know, told not to go out there and 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 do the and you know, not to go out there and beat people up, which is what he would have preferred to do. Um, and that handling of it, despite the praise that Leary gets uh, in a lot of other places and in Philadelphia, I mean, because of that performance, Howard Leary will. Uh, be recruited and named uh, police commissioner of the NYPD within a few years. Um, but it leaves a lot of Philadelphians angry, especially, especially white Philadelphians who, who don't see this. This didn't happen in their neighborhood. And they don't, you know, they don't see what it's like. All they're hearing about is from the media, and they're hearing about uh, people who, say, who are saying uh, the police weren't allowed to do their jobs. The police were, didn't, they, they, they had their hands tied. Um, and that becomes the, the main way of sort of framing this. You know, you're tying the hands of the police, tying the hands of those who are trying to protect. Um, and one of the things Rizzo is very clear, Rizzo, Rizzo is in every way possible the opposite of Howard Leary. Uh, and one of the things he's clear about is he will never 
hamstring the police if they're trying to do their jobs. And that is something that a lot of people are responding to. And so the, uh, the, or, the other, like the, I say there are two prongs to what I call blue-collar conservatism. The first, as I mentioned earlier, is this selective rejection of welfare liberalism. And the other is this law, and, law enforcement conservatism, more, more punitive policies, harsher treatment of supposed criminals, uh, and uh, much more unfettered responses from the police than you would have found under someone like Howard Leary. What kind of reaction did did all these things, Frank Rizzo and the Columbia Avenue riots, get from the uh, the working class African Americans, the blue collar mm -hmm. black community? Um, so there was the, I make they made it's interesting because I'm actually working on a, a small side project about this very thing. They made this distinction between law and order and law and justice. At least at least the community leaders. You know, those are the voices I'm, I, I've I've seen, and it's. The, the riot wasn't good for anybody's community. You know, nobody was praising the riot. No one was praising this uprising. You had some people who would say, like, well, this is what you expect to happen. Um, but what they're saying in response to it is, we need jobs programs. We need job training programs. We need, we need local, state, federal government to step in and do something about the conditions that led to uh, things being so desperate in this community anyway that we need programs to so so that so that the relationship between police and and the african American community isn't so hostile you know that they need all of these things um, rizzo's response is no rizzo's response and and not just rizzo but uh, the people who like rizzo see that as reward, rewarding <coughs> excuse me rewarding criminality and so that's how they frame this right uh the, that that if they riot, now they're going to get social programs. And they're like, well, that's that. And they say, that's not fair. A lot of, a lot of this is about things people perceive to be fair. Um, and, and, and so their response is, you know, stricter law and order. The other, the other, African Americans are not saying, you know, no law and order. They're saying law and justice. Like, let's, let's, we want you to do something about the criminal elements. Uh, we want you to do something about, uh, we, nobody wants uh, riots, but can we do so in a way uh, that, is, that, that, that is mutually respectful and, and respectful to the community? And there are, there are uh, community leaders that reach out to Rizzo. And, you know, we want, this, we want peace too. We want, we want crime to go down too. Uh, but can you do so with it while being respectful to people who, who aren't criminals in our community, and I mean, so so in a in a broader sense, the uh, you know in the 1960s and 1970s, not just this isn't just in Philadelphia, this is nationwide. The the twin problems in a lot of African American communities in, or, or, or inner city communities was both over policing and under policing, like the the over policing of innocent people and the assumption of guilt and the assumption of of uh, uh, of because somebody else in this neighborhood committed a crime that means everyone is suspect. And the other side, the other side of that coin was under policing because these were areas that crime did happen. And people wanted, the African Americans wanted police to do, to take care of that, but to res be respectful of their community at the same time and not assume everybody was a criminal. Now, talking about this, this period, the mid-1960s, and so um, were Blue collar jobs and the the union trade tr construction jobs open to African Americans at the time barely 
Um, and, and it's important, this is an important thing, that, that, or an important point, at least in the 1960s, and this will change going into the 1970s. Um, but blue collar jo jobs are really, really, I mean, as lucrative as they, they have been and are going to be, um, there is so much federal money coming in, and not just the Philadelphia, but every big city, so much federal money coming into uh, construction projects, uh, the highways are being completed. You know, I-95 in Philadelphia will not be completed until the mid-1968, I believe, right? And so that is, that is good. That's a good-paying union job. Um, there are federal buildings. One of the major federal uh, building projects in the 60s is, I want to say, it's a um, multi-multi-billion dollar, million-dollar construction of the new U.S. Mint facility. Um, these are all federal jobs, all of them union jobs, all of them, uh, but the building and construction trades were almost exclusively, were almost exclusively white. Uh, and that's why, uh, for mu much of the 1960s, one of the uh, main targets of the civil rights movement is the building and construction trades. Not only is there, a, you know, there is a, there's a cultural capital that came with being a construction worker. It was, it was good work, it was, it was honest work, and it was, it was honorable work. But it was also, in the 1960s, pretty well-paying work for, for a blue-collar job, especially, you know, high school education. Got to get, you, get it, you get into the union, and you, and you can actually make pretty decent, you know, money, like single breadwinner money. Uh, but because the unions, because of the way the unions worked in the 1960s, especially the construction unions, is that they, they, they made a number of deals in the 50s and 60s to control the training processes. So, so the, you know, it's, you can't just go in and be an electrician. You know, there's a training process that goes through that. And, and you can't just go in and, you, and it's not just, these are, these are jobs that take, um, you know, at least some sort of journeyman status to get through. Uh, the problem is they tended to recruit from within their own, own neighborhoods. They're, they recruit with, from within their own families in a lot of cases. And one point I make is, you know, for a, for a blue-collar family from a working-class neighborhood in Philadelphia, one of the best, one of the most important things a father could bestow to his son is entry into a union, you know, and that was important. But because they, they, they came from families, because they came from neighborhoods, Philadelphia is an incredibly segregated city in the 1960s, uh, one of the most segregated cities in the country. Not by, you know, the sort of Jim Crow legislation we're familiar with when we look at the South, but through extra legal measures, through uh, policies, and through a number of other reasons. Uh, and so when the unions are recruiting from within their own neighborhoods and within their communities, they're remaining uh, exclusively white, even if, even as, if they say not on purpose. You know, they, they, and they all claim this is not about excluding African-Americans. This, this is about proper channels. And so the, because, uh, because civil rights leaders in the city uh, make such a, uh, um, make, make these jobs such a central focus, and because they're good jobs, because they're uh, excluded, uh, the Johnson administration followed by the Nixon administration will respond with one of the very first pilot programs uh, for uh, federally enforced what we would call affirmative action. It was called the Philadelphia Plan. They tried one in a few other cities, and, but this is the one that actually worked. This would be the blueprint uh, for affirmative action nationwide. Um, and it, it never satisfied either side. Uh, it was never, there were never, you know, like a lot of programs, especially the Nixon administration sort of used it to draw to, in a lot of ways, to 
um, put a uh, put a wedge between two usually Democratic constituencies, you know, unions and, and African Americans. Um, so it never really satisfied anything, but it, it, it managed to um, alienate a number of white union workers. Who, what did it involve? Uh, several different aspects. First was, you know, uh, the, the, first, the one that, was, that would eventually be struck down, there were two versions of it. One um, was a quota system, that you have to have this many uh, non-white workers on everything. And that would be struck down. That was actually made, that was illegal because of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So that didn't work. Um, what it turned to was, was goals and timetables. Right, so you had to have some sort of set. They needed to have some sort of set path for for bringing more African Americans and more people of color into their unions, uh, and that meant that they that they needed to open up their training facilities to to more. And that was you know that's a much slower process. It, 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 quotas would have made things a little a little quicker, uh, but that was illegal. So it was these these long-term goals and timetables to integrate the, to, to, to have a, a more integrated workforce. Speaking of uh, Philadelphia segregated neighborhoods, would you tell the story about Lillian Wright moving into Kensington? Yeah. So Lillian Wright, I, I should, before, I should back up. So, so Philadelphia's neighborhoods are shifting. Um, um, you know, Philadelphia has this reputation as a, as a city of neighborhoods. It's something we still say Philadelphia calls itself a city of neighborhoods. Um, but while, you know, boundaries shift and they're constantly shifting. And this was especially, and areas like Kensington were uh, often buffers. You know, they, these were the places in between. And Kensington is, uh, in the 1960s, is caught in between two very different shifts in the city. Uh, one is the, the, the a population boom in North Philadelphia. Um, and this is primarily uh, African-American newcomers, people coming from the South, people coming from other areas, moving into North, North, into North Philly because that is where, um, where it is affordable to live. And because of that, North Philadelphia, or the boundaries of what is North Philadelphia, begin to expand. Kensington is likewise caught in between the growth of Northeast Philadelphia, which, was, which had a few older neighborhoods in the lower Northeast, uh, but further northeast was, much of it was farmland. There was still farmland in the city in the 1950s. And they're kind of caught in between this. And so Kensington sort of feels the pressure on both ends. You see these upwardly mobile, mobile um, some, of them, some of them also working class, some are middle class people you know, moving to northeast Philadelphia, and these growing working class African Americans in uh, in North Philadelphia who are pushing out of what is traditionally North, North Philadelphia and into what is Kensington. And the first woman to do so is uh, Lillian Wright, an African-American woman with, uh, uh, who is, at, the, at first she is separated or estranged from her husband, but um, her and her kids are going to rent this house at, at, in, in Kensington and uh, they're going to be the first uh, black family in that community until uh, the white neighborhood neighbors get wind of it. They, they, they see her moving in. And, and uh, what will ensue is five days, five nights of increasingly uh, hostile unrest, uh, including people throwing things at her houses, uh, chanting, uh, marching past her house uh, to protest an African-American woman moving into an all-white neighborhood. 
Uh, and she will, I mean, they, they will, her family, she will get back together with her husband who will move in and they live like this for a few months until they can no longer take it. The hostility becomes too much and they, and they, uh, and they leave and they go back to, to another area in North Philadelphia. Um, but it is, a, it is, you know, the, it, it's, there's a contrast here. Two years earlier is the, the uprising in North Philadelphia um, because of uh, the deterioration of police relations with, with the police. And two years later, you have this other riot, the Kensington riot, uh, which is a, a riot to force an African-American family out of the neighborhood. And, and they succeed. The white community succeeds in that. And, and, and Kensington becomes, because of all these other things, Kensington is a declining neighborhood. Kensington is, uh, you know, barely, at least economically, barely any better than North Philadelphia, or maybe a few degrees. And they're, they're, but they're tenaciously fighting for whatever they have left there. And to them, they see the, in, in, uh, the encroachment of, a, of, a, of an African-American family as a sign that their neighborhood is going in a direction they don't want. And, and they become a symbol of this, um, the, uh, of the, the white backlash in Philadelphia. Uh, uh, great, great, great Phil longtime Philadelphia journalist uh, Peter Benson wrote a book um, called, uh, about Kensington called White Town USA. And, and I think the, the long subtitle was uh, How the Silent Majority Lives, Thinks, and there's a couple other things there. But it's a brilliant, I mean, a really great up-close look at, at what Kensington looked like and why they, their response and their response to it to this community. The other one I want to ask about is Whitman and Whitman. the Whitman neighborhood and Whitman Park. So yes, and uh, Whitman Park was oh god, it was this was this was one of the things that got me further into this into this or, or further into this project than anything else. Um, one of the things you'll you, you should pick up you're probably picking up on as as we're getting through this is this isn't a. This is about Rizzo, but it's not a, a, a biography of Rizzo. This is about the people who support him, and it's really about these neighborhoods, and these and these neighborhood conflicts. And and Whitman is one of the longest. Uh, Whitman was one of these communities that. Well, what? Well, in fact, Whitman didn't exist. I mean, it did. It was a community, but it didn't have a name. It was this. Some people called it the Neck because it was not far from the confluence of the Schuylkill, uh, and and uh, Delaware Rivers in South Philadelphia. It was, it was sort of in between Southwark and Pennsport and a few other places, but this little area didn't have a name. Until uh, in the mid-50s, it would be designated for not just urban renewal, but urban conservation. This was using private resources and public monies uh, to rebuild a neighborhood, and they chose this one in particular um, because it was stable. You know, a lot of, the other, a lot of other neighborhoods, uh, especially white neighborhoods, uh, that had gone into decline, you started seeing people leaving. Now, this was what happened, was happening in Kensington. This is what happened in a lot of places. People leaving, going to north, northeast Philadelphia, or going to the suburbs. People were staying in Whitman, at least at first, in the 1950s. And they said, okay, this is going to be a case study for the city to show how good urban renewal can be. That, that you know, in a lot of other parts of the country, in a lot of, you know, urban renewal is seen as a very, very destructive process. A lot of raising homes. A lot of uh, destroying communities and so on in order to rebuild them, and, and it caused a lot of resentment, especially in African American communities. Um, but they were going to make a. This was going to be their case for for why urban renewal works in this community. It was going to be Whitman. 
But like everywhere else, there did team need to be some raising of homes. Some things were dilapidated. Some things needed to be rebuilt. And the, the block or two of homes that the city raised in the mid-1950s was the block or two of homes occupied by African Americans. Um, they, it was like in the outskirts of the neighborhood, the far end of the neighborhood. They, they, uh, they were going to be tor torn down. And in replace, to replace them uh, were going to be, was going to be public housing. And this was part of the deal from the beginning, as from when, when as soon as Whitman became, you know, this symbol of urban renewal, public housing was going to be part of it. At first, uh, the city was going to build high rises, high rise sort of sort of uh, tenement style high rise public housing you see in Chicago and other places like that. And the community fought that. Um, the, the community in the 1950s and early 60s fought that. They said, and not because they knew. Urban that, that public housing was part of their community. It was because this, this isn't the type of housing we want in this neighborhood. There's no high rises around here. Um, so the city shifts along working with the federal government and then uh, by, by the late 60s, the uh, Department of Housing and Urban, uh, um, HUD, Housing and Urban Development, uh, working together. And the, so they, they adopt the idea, instead of high rise public housing, they're gonna put in townhouses. And not, not only will these be townhouses with individual living spaces and all that, this is also going to be a new kind of public housing called turnkey three, whereas public housing tenants, if they make pay regular payments and, and do so for a number of years, uh, they will have the option to then mortgage the, the house and turn, turn public housing tenants into, into homeowners. I mean, this was, the goal of public housing in the United States from the beginning was always to help people move out of, move out into something else. And this was to do so in that house. By the late, by the early 70s, however, uh, there was, the, the neighborhood had changed. A lot of those people who had been involved in the early planning uh, began to move out, started moving to northeast Philadelphia and other places. And what we're, what we're left are the people who are decidedly more blue collar, decidedly more working class, who said they never knew that there was public housing coming in this. And, and they, were, they were pretty upset about it. And they, they would then, um, begin a long stand. I mean, the the one of the most acrimonious fights in the 1970s will be over the, the construction of public housing in Whitman, and it will and it'll bring Rizzo into it. It'll bring uh, uh, civil rights, tenant rights, and all sorts of people into into this fight. Uh, and it's it gets nasty. Um, and at first, uh, Rizzo Rizzo when he campaigns for mayor in 1971 says. He will not allow public housing in any neighborhood that doesn't want it. And and what's interesting about uh, there there's a uh, the guy who who is the president of uh, the opposition to public housing in in Whitman is a guy named Fred Druding, and he was a he he was a self-proclaimed liberal. You know he he said I'm a liberal I'm liberal, and he actually campaigned against Frank Rizzo when he went when he uh, when he was going up for the primary election. But then Rizzo made this promise. And the neighborhood becomes, I mean, in every election, in every one of Rizzo's election, Whitman has the highest percentage, one of the highest percentages of people who voted for Rizzo. Well over 90% of the neighborhood goes for Rizzo um, because he promises them. He promises them. And so construction stops in 1973. It's picked up. Uh, community leaders, community legal services gets involved. And they take the, they, they finally get this into federal court. And they make this about Rizzo. Rizzo has a reputation by the 1970s of, of, of being a racist. Came from his 
his period, his time as a police officer, and they bring this to the court and say, this is a clear pattern of reinforcing segregation in housing in Philadelphia. Uh, and they win. Uh, the, the, the civil rights the, the movement or, or leaders win. The tenants' rights people win. win. Uh, and construction recommences. And when construction recommences, people are out in the streets. There are, there are women climbing on top of bulldozers and, and massive demonstrations. And, and, and it gets very, very heated. Uh, until <laughs> until it, they will, the, the townhouses will be built and they will open in 1982. Uh, and they're still there to this day. They're actually, the, the turnkey three worked. But it was a long and acrimonious fight. And, and, and Rizzo, would, Rizzo would honestly make things worse, uh, I think, um, because by the late 1970s, as he's starting to, to lose his grip on power, he's had a, a very embarrassing moment with the bicentennial uh, failure. And he's looking for ways to, to may, remain relevant, I guess, in a lot of ways. And he starts talking about how after, after he's mayor, he's going to lead a movement for white ethnic rights. Not just in Philadelphia, but, but for anywhere, and he said, like, anywhere liberals want to come in and tell uh, good people how to live. That's how he's framing it. He, but he's going to start this movement, but then he turns it, he decides, no, instead of starting that movement, he's going to seek to change the city charter so he can run for a third term as mayor. And it's while doing that, and, and he's, he's making this stuff that's coming out of public housing, very central. These arguments that are coming out of the, the uh, out of Whitman and out of another uh, fight for this in Morrell Park in the far northeast. Uh, and while he's campaigning for, for charter change, you know, appearing not in, not in Whitman, but a, with another community group in northeast Philadelphia that was also fighting the construction of public housing, he says, he says I'm going to say to this, the, 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 the people of the city, vote white. Vote white. And that, 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 is, that is a catalyst. I mean, that the, the, voter, the African-American voter turnout in the 1978 um, uh, uh, charter change amendment will be highest in the city's history to that point. Uh, it'll, I mean, it'll ring through. And, and it's, it's, it's where the sort of veil, uh, you know, I, I refer to all this class language. It's very, it's colorblind. It's not about race. It's about class. And this, it starts to fall apart when Rizzo starts going, talking about white ethnic rights and starts talking about vote white. And it comes out of these public housing battles. Well, when he was elected mayor and, and started governing, how did his, the job he did compared to the rhetoric he used to get the job? Oh, he, he um, so, so Rizzo was not a, I don't know, he he was not a, a a an economic thinker, you know. He was he was he was a guy that knew how to, to charge up a base. He was a guy that knew how to, um, to to get things done for people. You know, he knew how to he knew how to talk to people, um, but he maintained a lot of the uh, advisors that were there under the Tate administration. Some of them stretching back from the Dilworth administration, um, and these were people that. But this is, you know, these are people that s still followed, you know, that old urban growth liberalism ideas. And, and, and so I say, he, you know, his mayority is a mix of this very like, cultural conservatism, uh, anti-crime, anti-public housing, anti-segregation, all these things, uh, anti-integration, all those things. But economically, still re trying to, to rebuild the city, um, rebuild the city that so, so like, you know, the, the, Economy goes downhill in the 1970s, and they're 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 struggling through some some very difficult economic times, and they're 
they're, they're using the same ideas that Tate, Dilworth, and Clark had been doing. These growth, you know, public-private partnerships, trying to uh, bring federal money, of which there's less of it, but bring federal money into the city uh, to, for, for new programs and stuff. So he's, he talks one side, but his administration does a lot of other things. I mean, so, so I, guess, I guess one of the more famously, he's, it's, it's the, and not Rizzo himself, um, but the, the Rizzo administration that really begins to, to, to lay the groundwork for um, making Philadelphia the, one of the capitals of the pharmaceutical industry in the United States as it is today. Um, that, you know, they, this, was, this was his economic advisors seeing the, the handwriting on the wall that deindustrialization was coming and it was hitting the city and it was hitting city, the city later than it did other places. But that the United that the Philadelphia was going to need new industries, and they start recruiting these, you know, the, these big pharmaceutical companies to set up shop in Philadelphia, uh, GlaxoSmithKline, and some of those. And that's the, I mean, it, they won't really become center, central to the city's economy until the 80s and 90s. But they start laying the groundwork for bringing in these new industries. And so, there's one on the one side, he's talking about you know blue collar tradition, he's blue collar values, but his advisors are are seeing that this city's future is white collar and service sector. Well, the blue collar workers after eight years of Frank Rizzo, were they better off, worse off, more integrated, less integrated? How, how did he leave um, them? Well, it, that's a kind of a difficult question to answer because it depends on who you ask. Um, you know, most of them would say they were better. They're their their economic standing didn't change. Uh, there, the city was still as segregated as it ever was before, um, but they believed that Rizzo made things better. You know, the 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 the, in the, end, uh, the example that comes to mind immediately is crime. Crime undoubtedly goes up in Philadelphia in the 1970s. The, the economy is worse. There are, I mean, there is, it is, there are less jobs and more people. Uh, street crime just goes skyrockets in the 1970s. But to this day, I've had people tell me, well, oh, there was no crime in Philadelphia when Rizzo was mayor. It's like, yes, there was. It was worse when Rizzo was mayor. And, and I'm not saying that's his fault, but it was happening. But people still gave him credit for things like that. You know, in a lot of ways, because they, because he was, as they said, one of them, because he was that the the, the sort of that that kind of a populist, uh, they continued to see him as a as a success, even when his it's really hard to see his mayoralty as as successful. Um, you know, so many people wrote letters saying they believed the city was safe when he was there, regardless of what everything else said. You know, um, and I don't want to say those those people were wrong. It's it's not my place, but I, I, it's a, it's an interesting, I don't want to say they were worse off if they believed they were better off, right? Um, but I don't know what objective standards, and, and, and a lot of these things were, were things that were well beyond Rizzo's control. Um, you, the, the broader changes in the American economy, in the American industrial economy, uh, were not something any mayor or any team of advisors was going to be able to do anything. In the end, deindustrialization would would have a much broader impact on you know blue collar fortunes and especially blue collar employment than anything this mayor did. But he made them f feel better. 
while doing it? Does that make, while, while, while all those things were happening? Does that make sense? Uh, are there lessons from this book, from the Rizzo era and the era covered under your book that can be drawn, that we can learn from today? Yes, I hope so. Um, I, yeah, I hope so. I, I mean, I think, I think the, as I, I stated earlier, there have been several people, and, I, and I, I was, because I was finishing writing this book in 2016, um, eventually President Trump does come in. At least, at least when I was writing this, he was still in the campaign. Um, there is something about the, their appeal and, that, and about that, the way that people uh, uh, respond to figures like Rizzo, figures like Trump. Um, you know, I, 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 I've long, as many people have been making, making these, the comparison between them, I have long maintained that they are more different than they are similar. Um, Rizzo was a row house ki kid, and he you know, worked his way up. There's a very big difference between that and, and Trump's rise. But they appeal to, to people in the same way. Uh, they appeal to people through, uh, you know, sometimes resentment, but also sort of a celebration of those, those sort of values. Um, in 2016, as I say, you know, I point out in the book, uh, Trump's son was out on the campaign trail for his father, Don, Don Jr. was out calling his father a blue-collar billionaire. You know, and I don't, I don't, I don't exactly know what that means, but I, but I do. I, it's that cultural idea of blue-collar. It's not. It has nothing to do with the fact that you know, he lives in a gold penthouse in New York City, but he still has that sort of unpolishedness, and that's what Rizzo had, and that and that sort of. That that's the sort of populism I think that is the lesson that's bringing out of it is 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 how people are attracted to figures like this because they speak to them, they speak their language, and they speak to them uh, not just as you know part of it is resentment, but also sort of celebrating who they are. Think about the way you know the, the way Trump talks about blue collar work, jobs that you know don't really exist anymore. But he still talks about them with with the sort of reverence and respect for that people believe they deserved when they had those jobs, when those jobs did exist. Well, that's going to have to be the last word. Okay, We're good. out of time. We've it been kind of speaking, works pretty well. We've been speaking with Timothy Lombardo. He is the author of this book, Blue Collar Conservatism, Frank Rizzo's Philadelphia and Populist Politics. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.